You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 374 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich, and Tracy won't be with us for this show. As we let those of you who follow us on social media know, Tracy has been out of town this past week on a family matter. So, you're stuck with just me for this episode. I know, ugh, sorry. But we'll soldier on and keep going with our discussion of Pickett's Charge. Here at the beginning of this show, we'll just wrap up a few loose ends about the Confederate artillery bombardment that preceded the infantry attack. First, how long did the bombardment last? Well, the traditional view is that it lasted nearly two hours mostly because several officers noted similar times in their battle reports, but as we've said before on the podcast, time simply wasn't measured as precisely back in those days. In fact, it's kind of interesting that analyzing participant accounts, you'll find that Federals skewed toward 90 minutes or longer while roughly half of Confederate accounts were one hour and 15 minutes or less. General Meade reported that the bombardment opened at 1 p.m. and continued, quote, over two hours. However, Lieutenant Colonel Freeman McGilvery of the Army of the Potomac's Artillery Reserve thought 90 minutes. On the Confederate side, General Longstreet said, quote, For an hour or two, the fire was continued. At the opposite end of the spectrum, though, Major Eshleman of Louisiana's Washington Artillery thought the rebel infantry moved forward, quote, about 30 minutes after the signal guns had been fired. And then Porter Alexander's recollections are the most problematic for historians to tackle because, as you guys will recall, he was tasked with determining when Pickett should advance, and one would assume, therefore, that Alexander would have been aware of the elapsed time. But surprisingly, he made no comment at all in his battle report about the effectiveness of the bombardment or its duration. 
And trying to make sense of all this is further complicated by the fact there was difficulty even in agreeing on what constituted the end of the bombardment. That's because many batteries on both sides never stopped firing when the Confederate infantry began the assault, and so that unbroken booming of the cannon served as a bridge between one phase of the action and another, uh, causing many participants to have trouble later on making sense of their mental timeline of what happened and when it happened. So all we can say with relative certainty is the signal guns fired shortly after one o'clock that afternoon. The heaviest cannon fire lasted around an hour with some firing going on for at least another 30 minutes afterward. All right, that was one question. How long did it last? Then, second question, what had been accomplished by this tremendous bombardment? Well, the Prussian military observer, Captain Justice Scheibert, who was traveling with Lee's headquarters, dismissed the cannonade as a Pulververschwindung, which can be loosely translated as a waste of powder. However, this description was only partially accurate because the truth was that in a limited but significant way, the Confederate bombardment was particularly effective and did give Pickett's division, if not the entire attacking force, a better chance of success. But in other ways, the rebel cannonade was certainly a waste of effort. So let's take a minute to look at how, to some degree, the bombardment was successful, but why, in the larger sense, it was a failure. And probably the best way to approach this is to ask, what did the Confederates need to accomplish with the cannonade? Well, most importantly, they needed to knock out, or at least significantly reduce, federal artillery power, so the rebel foot soldiers wouldn't be punished so severely when they advanced. And actually, the bombardment succeeded in doing this to the federal batteries that were located in the vicinity of the angle, which would be the focal point of the infantry assault. All of the Second Corps batteries there, at that point in the federal line, were absolutely hammered by the Confederate artillery fire, with Cushing's battery almost completely disabled. And the guns in these batteries that did remain operable wouldn't be able to fire at long range on the Confederate infantry when it appeared, since they had used up their long-range ammunition dueling with the rebel cannon. And then there wasn't enough of them left, that is, working Federal guns, to stop the Confederate infantry at close range with canister. All of that going on with those Federal 2nd Corps batteries gave Pickett's Virginians a better chance of piercing the Union line at that point, an opportunity we'll see they'll make the most of when the momentum of their assault took them up to and across the stone wall. Having said that, though, it's obvious that the rebel cannonade failed to achieve any significant reduction in federal artillery power on any other part of the line. 
To the south, the pieces on Little Round Top and in McGilvery's substantial gun line were in full force and waiting with plenty of long-range ammunition. And then to the north, Osborne's 11th Corps cannon on Cemetery Hill had been hurt by the Confederate shell fire, but were still powerful and eager to deal a major blow to the charging rebel infantry. And in addition, as we mentioned previously, there were many more Federal batteries in reserve, ready to go into action on Henry Hunt's orders. So that was the Federal artillery. A second objective of the Confederate bombardment was to demoralize, kill, and wound as many Union infantrymen as possible. And while the rebel shellfire certainly put great stress on the Yankee foot soldiers hunkered down under the barrage, it didn't achieve any significant advantage in this respect since the vast majority of Federal infantrymen survived the bombardment and were ready to fight when the Confederate counterparts showed themselves. It's uncertain how many Federal infantrymen on Cemetery Bridge were lost as casualties during the Rebel Cannonade, but it's estimated the number was about 350. And by the way, it's thought about roughly the same number, possibly a bit more, of Confederate infantrymen over on Seminary Ridge were killed or wounded by Federal artillery fire during that same time. In any case, the rebel artillery fire failed to significantly demoralize or weaken the Federal infantry on Cemetery Ridge, and it also didn't stop George Meade from positioning reinforcements which would be ready to deal with any Confederate breakthrough. As we mentioned previously, Meade had issued a flurry of orders, bringing more troops toward the center of his line. Robinson's division from the 1st Corps was moved forward from behind Cemetery Hill to the right of the 2nd Corps to shore up Hay's right flank. Shaler's 6th Corps brigade was positioned to the left and rear of the 2nd Corps to act as a reserve. Wadsworth's 1st Corps division, including what was left of the famed Iron Brigade, was also placed in reserve with Shaler's command. Another 6th Corps brigade, Eustace's, marched from the foot of Little Round Top to a reserve position in rear of the 2nd Corps. Uh, so again, if you want to think of the battlefield as a chessboard, Meade was positioning pieces to counter Robert E. Lee's move in attacking the Federal Center. Alright, to, to sum up this part of the, the show, we can say that Porter Alexander and his compatriots in the Confederate artillery had done all they could, but as it turned out, it was far from enough. That meant as the rebel infantry in Pickett's, Pettigrew's, and Trimble's divisions stood up and prepared to go forward into the assault, they did so really with not much more in the way of advantages than they had had an hour earlier. That's because the Confederate bombardment, while an impressive display of sound and fury, hadn't significantly reduced the overall Federal artillery power or knocked enough Union infantry out of the fight to make any real difference. 
Despite that, it was now time for the Confederate foot soldiers to go forward. It was all up to them now. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In his book on Gettysburg, Stephen Sears starts off the chapter that's titled The Grand Charge by writing, The thunder and crash of the cannonade died away, and seemingly on cue, as if the god of battles were stage managing the scene, a light breeze sprang up and gradually carried away the clouds of smoke obscuring the battlefield. It was like a curtain rising and the sheer magnitude of the sight revealed took breaths away. Involuntarily, all along the Yankee line came the cry, Here they come! Here comes the infantry! Well, Sears does a a great job of painting the scene, right? Uh, But that passage will have to remain a bit of a teaser, since I thought it'd be best to wait to actually get the charge underway uh, until Tracy gets back and rejoins us. So what I thought you and I would do with the rest of this episode is uh, have us talk about why Robert E. Lee was attacking again on the third day of the battle. And of course, the answer is that he had to. Once he decided to go all in at Gettysburg by fighting a battle there at at that crossroads town, Robert E. Lee really had no choice but to see that fight through to its conclusion. Once his army was engaged with the Federals there at Gettysburg to try to disengage and slide around the Yankees to get between them and Washington and force them to attack, as Longstreet had proposed, well, that was simply impractical. Uh, to stay at Gettysburg and go over to the defensive was also not a realistic option. Lee was the one deep in enemy territory, 
with only a tenuous line of communication and supply back to Virginia, and he simply couldn't afford to give up the initiative by going over to the defensive at Gettysburg and waiting for the Federals to do something. He couldn't afford to do that because time was his enemy and not the Yankees. And then to retreat was not something Robert E. Lee would have seriously considered. Uh, It was not in his nature as a general, and besides, he believed his army had come close to victory the previous two days, and that a knockout blow could be delivered on the third day of the battle. Remember, Lee had come up to Pennsylvania to fight a decisive battle with the enemy. Now, battle had been joined here at Gettysburg, and so here was where he was going to defeat the Yankee army. So, all of that's to say that to defeat the Yankees here at Gettysburg required attacking. And so the Confederates attacked on the first day of the battle, and on the second day, and would do so again here on the third day of the battle. Maintaining the initiative in this way, with this aggressive posture, perfectly suited not only Lee's own inclinations as a commander, but also, he believed, perfectly suited his army's character. That is, Lee believed that his army was at its best when it was taking the fight to the enemy. Not long before the start of the campaign, Lee had stated, quote, There never were such men in an army before. If properly led, they will go anywhere and never fail at the work before them. End quote. Well, there can be little doubt, uh, especially since he admitted as much afterward, that such thinking with regard to his army lay behind much of Lee's decision-making at Gettysburg, including his plan to attack the Federal Center on July 3rd. Robert E. Lee had brought his army to Pennsylvania seeking a decisive victory, and the path to such a victory lay across those open fields on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg. As I said just a minute ago, uh, after the bombardment, it was all up to the Confederate infantry as they rose to advance across those fields towards Cemetery Ridge. But to Robert E. Lee, such a charge was no desperate last gasp measure, because Lee believed the enemy simply couldn't match his troops' valor and combat prowess. In Lee's mind, the results of the fighting the previous two days had been steps forward, moving him nearer to claiming the victory he was seeking. And now what was needed was to keep moving forward, maintain the initiative that was his, keep attacking. And this massive effort on the third day of the battle, the punishing artillery bombardment, followed by an irresistible infantry charge, would finally break the enemy. Well, needless to say, only a commander who had supreme confidence in himself and his army would dare to be so aggressive while operating deep in enemy territory. But an Alabaman had boasted in a letter home, quote, No army ever commenced a campaign under more brilliant prospects or with firmer hopes of success 
than ours. Another soldier surely voiced not only his own opinion, but also spoke for many of his comrades when he said, quote, We will clear the Yankees out this summer and whip them. And Porter Alexander summed it up years later when he wrote, I am sure there can never have been an army with more supreme confidence in its commander than that army had in General Lee. We looked forward to victory under him as confidently as to successive sunrises. So really, all of that's to say, the Army of Northern Virginia went into Pennsylvania in the summer of 1863, supremely confident that under Lee's direction, it could triumph on any battlefield. Lee, as we've seen, had equal confidence in his men. And something else we wanted to mention, because although he never came right out and said it, but we think Robert E. Lee's actions show that he was also supremely confident that he was the better general than anyone the Federals had or would put in the field against him. And that confidence in his own abilities surely affected the decisions he made at Gettysburg. Remember, George Meade had only been in command of the Army of the Potomac for three days prior to the start of the Battle of Gettysburg, and Lee probably thought that there was no way, no way, that someone who had only been in command for a few days could best him on a battlefield. So with that, uh, we're delving into the psychology of command, I guess. But it's just hard to believe that uh, a contemplation of Meade's short time in charge never crossed Lee's mind, and that as a result, Lee was confident he could whip Meade, just as his men were confident they could whip their counterparts in blue. Well, all of that was probably an incredibly roundabout way of looking at why Lee was attacking again on the third day of the battle. But hopefully you found it interesting. If you didn't, don't tell Tracy that I messed around with this episode while she was gone. Uh, but next time, when she is with us again, we'll get to Pickett's charge. Uh, but for now, we'll let Major Nathaniel Wilson of the 28th Virginia in Garnett's Brigade have the last word here. Minutes before the brigade aligned its ranks, Wilson took out his diary and wrote, July 3rd, in line of battle, expecting to move forward every minute. With our trust in God, we fear not an earthly enemy. God be with us. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Gettysburg Cyclorama, The Turning Point of the Civil War on Canvas by Chris Brenneman and Sue Boardman with photography by Bill Dowling. You know, for generations now, literally millions of Gettysburg visitors have experienced Pickett's Charge through the massively impressive canvas of the cyclorama. Now it's housed in the superb visitor center and museum, but if you're 
of a certain age, shall we say, uh, then like me, you might remember visiting it as a kid when it was in its own building there on Cemetery Ridge. Anyway, this is an excellent book about the painting's creation, restoration, and ongoing interpretation as part of the battlefield experience. As always, you can find a complete list of all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. Spencer M., Eric, Doug G., Lev, Michael S., Catherine T., Brian G., Christina C., Derek B., and Federico. Also a big thank you to those who made recent donations. Eric L., Russell M., Jeff F., and Mark M. Uh, Thank you one and all. Uh, Your support of the show means the world to us. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks everyone. Bye.